everyone, and welcome to this reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. This is the Friday, January 20th, 2023 edition here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Hey, this is Andy here. So glad to be back in the saddle. That means, yes, Studio 3, as uh, our computer's working again in here. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be a much better read than what you might normally hear from me um, here on IRIS. Uh, taking a look at these headlines before we take a quick check of the forecast. Riverside kicks off campaign. District aims to raise money for improvements. That's a story by Tim Johnson. Also, significant snow misses Council Bluffs. Hey, everybody didn't have to dig out for so long. Uh, we'll m- learn more about that. And uh, private school assistance nearing a vote in Iowa. That's what everybody seems to be talking about. School choice. But before we get into all of that and the headline stories, we're going to take a check of the forecast here for Council Bluffs, Omaha, the western Iowa and eastern Nebraska area. All right, for this afternoon, you can expect mostly cloudy conditions at high near 30 degrees, winds from the west and southwest around 6 miles per hour. For tonight, your Friday night, expect patchy fog before 1 in the morning, then patchy fog after 2 a.m. Actually, I should say early Saturday morning rather than Friday night, but you all know what I mean, the overnight conditions. Otherwise, mostly cloudy conditions uh, low around 21 degrees above. Light and variable wind becoming west around 5 miles per hour after midnight. But again, for tonight, a low of 21. For your Saturday, during the day, you can expect a 30% chance of snow in the afternoon. Patchy fog between 7 and 11 a.m., otherwise mostly cloudy with a high near 31. For your Saturday night, a 20% chance of snow before midnight, mostly cloudy, a low around 21. Another low around 21. And then uh, Sunday, partly sunny with a high near 28. Hey, maybe we'll warm up one of these days and we'll burn off some of that snow, but it doesn't sound like we got too much. Taking a look here at the headlines and starting off with that snow story. The headline photo shows Dave Walling scooping snow from the sidewalk along Avenue C near 24th Street on Thursday, January 19th. The photo is by Joe Shearer of the Daily Nonpareil. Significant snow misses Council Bluffs. Story begins. A winter storm warning in effect Wednesday through Thursday morning caused Council Bluffs Community Schools to cancel classes on Wednesday and delay Thursday start time by two hours. Following a mix of rain, freezing rain, sleet, and finally snow, accumulations totaled much less than originally forecast. Snow totals for the metro area generally range from one to three inches, according to the National Weather Service in Valley, Nebraska. The area's official total was 1.6 inches. Well, not too bad. With temperatures just warm enough to stave off much of the snow forecast for the area, about one degree seemed to make all the difference. The primary reason Omaha didn't see significant snow Wednesday afternoon was warmth some 2,000 to 3,000 feet high in the atmosphere. AccuWeather's Grady Gilman told the Omaha World Herald temperatures at that level were a degree or two higher than expected. Still light snow was falling during the Thursday morning commute and conditions quickly became windy in the afternoon. Conditions were expected to be dry Friday with potential for isolated snow showers Saturday, said Matt Hollener, chief meteorologist for Lee Enterprises. Our next story, Riverside kicks off campaign. District aims to raise money for improvements. The story by Tim Johnson here on the front page of the Daily Nonpareil. Riverside Community School District has launched Riverside Pride Capital Campaign to raise money for improvements to parking areas, landscaping, and the Charles L. Pigneri 
Athletic Complex. The cost of the three-phase upgrade has been estimated at just shy of $1.5 million and would be funded with a combination of district funds, private donations, and foundation grants, according to a news release posted on the district's website. Almost half of that, about $745,000, has already been pledged, and area collaborators have offered in-kind donations and volunteer work. The district chose not to request a bond election for the project to avoid a tax increase. That said Superintendent Tim Mitchell in an email message. Since passing the bond issue for the new middle high school, the board has, has committed to keep that tax rate level, he said. Well, district voters approved a $15.1 million bond issue in June of 2013 for construction of new junior-senior high school, of a new junior-senior high school, which opened in August 2016. School officials and potential donors felt the project would lend itself to a fundraising campaign, Mitchell said. Revenue from the district's physical plant and equipment levy and the uh, secure and an advanced vision for education one-cent sales tax will make up a portion of the funding. Phase one will include a Riverside welcome sign, which is completed. The We Are Riverside donor recognition wall, that's in prog- process. A digital marquee sign, which is in prog- process. Parking lot improvements, repair to baseball and softball fields, construction of a retaining wall, and landscaping for a safe room and possible installation of a well for irrigation. The district is looking at other water sources too, Mitchell said. A local well company has asked to consider utilizing wells already in operation but not in use that are owned by several neighboring landowners since they are now connected to Oakland City Water, he said. This will require partnership agreements with these landowners. This might be more cost-effective than installing new wells. An additional water source is being sought because water restrictions implemented during the past two summers made it hard to keep the athletic fields in good condition, Mitchell said. The middle high school is connected to the Oakland City Water System. Phase two would include replacement of the football field's artificial turf with grass and a sand base, work on the visitor's section at the football field and construction of a satellite concession stand with restrooms for the baseball and softball fields. Grass is being considered for the football field because donors and foundations felt buying artificial turf and replacing it when it wears out was an unneeded expense, Mitchell said. We found a contractor that has had success in rehabilitating grass football fields in our area, and we are looking at their proposal, he said. Well, phase three would be the construction of a 300-seat amphitheater, outdoor classroom between the football and softball fields at the athletic complex. This space will be utilized to gather students for class sessions and to hold award and recognition ceremonies, band and vocal performances, musicals, and plays, Mitchell said. It also has potential as a revenue-building venue for dance for area dance recitals, piano recitals, and outdoor performances and concerts. It will also be a space available to all communities for special events. 
Outdoor learning can promote student mental health, academic growth, and local economic development, he said. Amphitheaters can bring communities together and generate positive economic impact if they are located properly and designed with a multitude of uses to entice visitors of all ages to enjoy the space and surrounding amenities, Mitchell said. This builds on our capacity to increase the types and number of educational, recreational, and cultural events that can be hosted in our communities. Mitchell said he is grateful for the community's support for the school district. Riverside appreciates the generosity of our community, he said. Through donations from individuals, families, and businesses, we are working to make needed facility improvements to support a safe and high-quality environment for academic, co-curricular, and extracurricular programming for current and future students and supporters of Riverside. Through these capital investments, we show our commitment and resolve to continue building the legacy of Riverside. For updates and information, check the Riverside Pride Community Committee Fund Facebook page. For a complete informational packet about the campaign or to set up a meeting and learn how you can help, contact Superintendent Tim Mitchell at 712-484-2212. Those who are bullish on Bulldog territory can donate online at, uh, I'm not going to give you the full link here. If you'd like that, you can contact the school district. Moving on now to other front page news. Private school assistance nearing a vote in Iowa. This story by Kayla McAuliffe, Dateline, Des Moines. Iowa legislative leaders expect Governor Kim Reynolds' private school assistance proposal to come to a floor vote early next week in both the House and the Senate. Reynolds, a Republican, announced the bill last Tuesday, and it has dominated the first two weeks of the legislative session. Republicans have fast-tracked it through the lawmaking process in both chambers. I haven't set an exact time, but I would say early in the, in the week would be the expectation, Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley of New Hartford said Wednesday. House Democratic Leader Jennifer Confirst of Windsor Heights said she expects the bill to go to a floor vote on Monday. If the bill passes through both chambers, it will go to Reynolds' desk to be signed into law. Next week is National School Choice Week, a week of advocacy and events focused on giving parents broader options in education. Grassley maintained confidence that Republicans have the votes to pass the bill this year. A far narrower private school scholarship program last year failed to gain support of several Republicans in the House, some from rural areas who were concerned about how a loss of funds would affect their districts. I don't think I'd be moving the bill along the process if we didn't have that expectation that it will pass, Grassley said. Reynolds' proposal this year would provide parents the option of using $7,598 in taxpayer funds, the state's per-pupil K-12 education allotment, to send their child to a private school. The money can be used on tuition, supplies, and other educational expenses. In the first year, the program would be open to all public school students and students starting kindergarten at a private school. Private school students and families making up to 300% of the federal poverty level, would also be eligible in the first year. Reynolds' office estimates the program would cost nearly $107 million that year. By the time it's fully phased in, the program would be open to all students in public and private schools, regardless of income, and would cost the state $341 million annually, according to estimates from Reynolds' office. The state's nonpartisan fiscal agency has not yet analyzed the bill. School districts would get $1,250 in state funding for each student who lives in the district but attends a private school. Schools would also be able to use unspent money in certain categorical funds. 
to increase teacher salaries. Democrats urged public pressure. Speaking with reporters on Wednesday, Democrats urged Iowans opposed to the measure to contact the representatives over the weekend in preparation for the upcoming floor debate. Democrats who are in the minority in both chambers have uniformly opposed the bill as it has gone through committees. Confers said the bill is unpopular with Iowans. More than half of Iowans opposed Reynolds' narrower proposal in a Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll last year. Remind your legislators that we don't work for the governor, we work for constituents, Confers said. So we're asking Iowans to let them know that and remind them that we are not here to do the governor's bidding. We're here to do the work of the people. Senate Democratic leader Zach Walls of Coralville said he expects the Senate will consider the legislation early next week as well. Bill Clear's last hurdle in Senate. The legislation advanced through the Senate Budget Committee Thursday. Committee leaders from the Republican majority combined the two legislative committee steps into one hearing, and the bill passed both steps along party lines. Because the proposal includes new state spending, it was required to pass through both education policy and budget committees. The Republican-led House drafted a new rule that allowed them to skip the budget committee in that chamber. Senator Tim Crayenbrink, a Republican from Fort Dodge who chairs the Senate Budget Committee, said he expects the governor's estimate is a conservative figure and that the program would cost even more. Still, Crayenbrink said he supports the bill and believes it will work within the state budget because of majority Republicans' conservative budgeting practices. Nonpartisan Fiscal Vote The nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency has not analyzed the fiscal impacts of the bill, and Democrats have said they'd like to see those estimates before it goes to a floor vote. Confers said the agency's fiscal estimate may come on Monday. That's not a lot of time to look over something that's going to be a billion-dollar project over four years, she said. We think that it's only fair when we're spending this much taxpayer money. We should know where it's coming from and know and and how much it's going to impact the rest of the budget. Grassley said he'd like to see the fiscal estimate, but he pointed to numbers coming out of the governor's office and said Republicans have been transparent about the cost of the program. The goal is obviously to have that, but if we don't have that, we have been very transparent and clear with what the costs are, not just with this, but in the entirety of the budget moving forward up to even five years, he said. That's really a long projection to make any sort of budget decision. Well, Aaron Murphy of the Gazette, Des Moines Bureau, contributed to that article, which was written by Caleb McCullough. So we have a lot of front-page news, actually five different headlines on this edition of the Daily Non-Prel, Friday, January 20th, 2023 A.D., Chamber addresses workforce needs, says more education and training is needed. That's written by David Goldblitz. Golbitz, yes, Golbitz, uh, the nonpareil. Post-secondary education and additional training opportunities are vital to growing Pottawatomie County's workforce and economic development, Council Bluffs Area Chamber of Commerce leadership told county supervisors during a presentation at Tuesday's board meeting. Chamber President and CEO Drew Camp and Workforce Development Director Alicia Freeze discussed the barriers to improving the, co- the county's ability to attract and retain workers, also highlighting new chamber programming designed to mitigate or remove those barriers. Beginning in 2018, the chamber asked employees throughout the county to complete an annual workforce survey and has used the data to create benchmarks for progress in the community. In 2018, employee turnover was around 33%. At the start of 2023, that number had decreased to about 
17%, which is a great improvement, Freeze said. Ultimately, the chamber hopes to get employee turnover down to 10%. The chamber would also like to see an increase in the number of people in the labor pool to 80% of eligible workers. Currently, both Pottawatomie County and Council Bluffs are sitting around 65%. One way to increase that labor pool and keep workers in the county is to greatly increase the number of fully funded apprenticeships available. It had been estimated that 10% of county employers offered such apprenticeships, which pay for an employee's education and wages, but that number is actually only 2.5%, a far cry from the 50% the Chamber is hoping to see. We have got a number of programs and meetings set up with businesses to really try to advocate and show them the programs that are available to the state and help them get those in place, Freeze said. For example, a representative from Omaha-based Logier will be addressing the Chamber's Workforce Power Hour on Wednesday, January 25th, to talk about the company's apprenticeship program. Logier, a store fixture manufacturing company with more than 2,000 employees, offers a paid internship the summer before classes begin, paid tuition for a two-year associate's degree at Metro Community College, and then full-time employment once the apprentice graduates. Freeze also noted that 20% of the county's population have a post-secondary degree, which the chamber would like to see at around 55%. About 89% of the workforce has a high school diploma, Freeze said, in partnership with the school districts and their plus one initiatives. We know that they probably have some additional training. We're working to ensure that we make those additional programs and training available to them, and that we help directly place them into the hands of our employers. Our final front page story, lawmakers try to fix funding for aiding vets. Heartbreaking to turn veterans away after fund ran dry last fall. Well, this is written by Aaron Murphy of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau, Dateline, Des Moines, Iowa. A depleted state fund for emergency financial assistance to Iowa veterans would get a boost under multiple proposals from Iowa lawmakers. The available funds from the Iowa Veterans Trust Fund ran out for the first time in a decade in October. State officials said recently expanded eligibility and increased costs exhausted the funding. That meant funds were unavailable to veterans who had hoped to use the program to help pay for myriad eligible expenses. Like medical equipment, emergency room care, dental and hearing care, emergency housing and vehicle repairs, counseling, unemployment assistance, and job training. The Iowa Commission of Veterans Affairs housed in the Iowa Department of Veterans Affairs and operates the program. They have been forced to reject veterans' requests for financial assistance. It's pretty heartbreaking to turn away a widow or a veteran who needs a new roof and doesn't have insurance, said Carol Whitmore, a commission member from Des Moines. The commission spent $632,000 in 2019 and $573,000 in 2020. During 2021, in an effort to aid more veterans during the COVID-19 pandemic and in the wake of the August 2020 deratio, the commission spent nearly $1.3 million. By October 2022, however, the entire available funding from the trust fund was exhausted and the commission postponed accepting new requests until additional funds became available. Lawmakers Wednesday started working on potential remedies. The Iowa Veterans Trust Fund contains $38.6 million, according to the fund's 2022 report, but that money cannot be spent until it reaches $50 million. Spending from the program comes from an annual $500,000 allocation from the state's lottery fund, plus interest on the lottery fund, which 
totaled just shy of $60,000 last year. A bill in the Iowa House would increase the annual allocation from $500,000 to $800,000. House Study Bill 21 was introduced by Representative Chad Ingalls, a Republican from Randalia, who chairs the House's Veterans Affairs Committee. The State Veterans Affairs Department made a similar request last year, and the bill was approved unanimously by the House, but was not considered by the Senate. But that would only help the trust fund in future years. Meantime, the fund remains empty through June 30th, the end of the state budget year. A bill in the Iowa Senate would double the annual allocation from $500,000 to $1 million and also would immediately appropriate $500,000 for immediate use. Senate File 82 was proposed by Senate Democrats, including Senator Bill Dotzler, a Democrat from Waterloo. As a state, we should never turn away veterans in need. But that's exactly what's happening now, Dotzler said in a statement. This bill would erase the existing shortfall in the Veterans Trust Fund and help ensure we're moving, or rather we're keeping, our promises to those who served. We owe it to our veterans to honor their service and meet their needs, especially in emergency situations. Representative Martin Graber, a Republican from Fort Madison, said the House Republican bill could also eventually include an emergency appropriation to the trust fund or a separate allocation could come via the state budgeting process. There are veterans who have bills that aren't getting paid. So, yes, there is a sense of urgency, Graber said. Iowa Veterans Affairs Director Todd Jacobus was at the Iowa Capitol on Wednesday to address state legislators. He said there should be a discussion about eligibility for the program in order to ensure that state funds are not depleted again and that veterans who are truly in an emergency have access to the funds. More resources would definitely provide more flexibility, Jacob has said, and I really think that we need to relook at the rules associated with what qualifies an individual for an emergency. Meantime, Iowa veterans in need of financial assistance should talk to their local veteran services officials about other options and programs, the State Veterans Affairs Office said. All right, that takes care of everything on the front page. Moving on now to page A2. We have face of the day, this time Luna the dog. It's courtesy of the Midlands Humane Society, Luna the coonhound. All right, a coonhound wants to sniff herself into a loving forever home as soon as possible. Luna is a five-year-old female, black and tan coonhound. Oh, how beautiful. Mix, who is currently available for adoption at Midlands Humane Society. Shelter staff members say Luna is a sweet girl who loves to play and can't wait to join her new family. She knows basic commands and walks well on a leash. She has jumped as six-foot fence before. uh, A six-foot fence before. I think there's a typo there. Never mind. So she will need supervision outside. Her adoption fee is $150, which includes a microchip spaying and age-appropriate vaccines. In other shelter news, Midland celebrated what would have been the 101st birthday of renowned actress and animal philanthropist Betty White, who passed away at the end of 2021 on Tuesday. To commemorate White's memory, the shelter offered a $101 discount on all dogs six months and older. The pups and resident also got some dog-friendly ice cream cups to keep the party rolling. Keep an eye out on the shelter's social media and website for upcoming specials and events. 
More information about fostering, volunteering, and donation opportunities can be found at MidlandsHumaneSociety.org or by calling 712-396-2270. Like their Facebook page to keep up with daily shelter news. The shelter can be found at Midlands Humane on Twitter or at Midlands Humane. That's M-I-D-L-A-N-D-S-H-U-M-A-N Society on Instagram, Midlands Humane Society on Instagram. All right, well, that's a very good-looking dog there. If I was a little closer, she might be joining a couple of uh, rascally Maine Coons, or whatever that Missy is, uh, tuxedo cats who like to bicker. Yeah, it's not good around there. They need a, a coon hound to keep them in check. Iowa DOE seeks nominations for Teacher of the Year. It's written by Tim Johnson. It's here on page A2 at the top. The Iowa Department of Education is inviting people associated with education to submit nominations for the 2024 Iowa Teacher of the Year. And it's time to speak up. It's been more than 20 years since a Southwest Iowa educator was named overall Teacher of the Year, although some have been chosen Teacher of the Year in a particular subject area. The last two were Thomas H. Paulson, an agriculture education teacher at Carroll Community High School in 2000, and Maureen Hoffman, English teacher at AHST Middle School in 1999. School administrators, colleagues, students, parents, college faculty, and associations are all eligible to nominate someone. A press release from the department stated, self-nominations and nominations by family members are not accepted. (laughs) Oh, that could be interesting. Winners are chosen by a committee that includes representatives of the Iowa Department of Education, the Iowa State Education Association, the School Administrators of Iowa, the Parent Teachers Association, the past Iowa Teacher of the Year, and representatives from higher education institutions. The Teacher of the Year Award provides an opportunity to recognize an Iowa teacher who motivates, challenges, and inspires excellence, who is respected by students and peers, who is a dedicated professional and that uh, helps nurture hidden talents and abilities, who is creative, a caring individual, someone who takes teaching beyond textbooks and blackboards, and who is an exceptional teacher helping to redefine American education. The Iowa Teacher of the Year may serve as the Iowa Ambassador to Education, acting as an educational liaison to primary and secondary schools in the state, The award was established in 1958 and is sponsored by the Iowa Department of Education through an appropriation from the Iowa legislature. For a nomination form, go to educateiowa.gov and under the headlines, click Nominate Someone for Teacher of the Year. A short story, Potawatomi Conservation Foundation presents County with $125,000 for acquisition. And the headline photo, it's not really a headline photo, but it's a photo. It's by David Golbitz. The Potawatomi Conservation Fund presents a novelty check, which is one of those big ones, you know, they show for $125,000 to the County Board of Supervisors. That's in this photo, everybody's standing around, as part of the conservation's plan to repay the county for the purchase of the Doris Ferguson land acquisition on Tuesday, January 17th, 2023. And the front row pictured from left, our Conservation Foundation past president, Lori Shields. Conservation Foundation Board Member Kathy Fiscus, Supervisor Susan Miller, and Board Chairman Brian Shea. In the back row are Supervisor Scott Belt, Supervisor Tim Wickman, 
Conservation Foundation President Judd Knipsel, or Knispel, K-N-I-S-P-E-L, and Supervisor Jeff Jorgensen. This full story, the Potawatomi Potawatomi Conservation Foundation presented an oversized novelty check for $125,000 to the Potawatomi County Board of Supervisors during the board's meeting on January, I'm sorry, yes, yes, January 17th, Tuesday. The check represents part of the purchase price of Potawatomi Conservation's acquisition of 93 acres of land adjacent to Hitchcock Nature Center from the family of Doris Ferguson, who told her children that after she was gone, she wanted the land to go to the county. The county board voted in November to approve the purchase for $1,175,000. One of conservation strategies was to find partners and other funding sources to replenish the land fund that the supervisors used. And over the next nine months, we'll be working on other avenues to try to replenish those dollars, Conservation Director Mark Shoemaker said at the meeting. Conservation Foundation President Judd Nipsel, past President Lori Shields, and board member Kathy Fiscus were on hand to present the check. And we are running very close on time here. Why don't we just tell you that it's the halfway point, even though we're about 29 minutes in. Uh, that uh, it's a halfway point here in the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Pareil Reading. This is for Friday, January 20th, 2023. My name is Andrew Hoppy Reader filling in. All programs heard on IRIS are intended for the use of our audience. If you have any other comments on this or any other IRIS program, then please give us a call at 515-243-6833. Typically, we would turn to obituaries at this time, but there are none. I guess nobody died. That's a good thing. That's good news. Moving on now to the opinion section here of the Council Bluffs Daily Don Farrell. Deal to help South Africa is a breakthrough. Nation could be blueprint for transforming coal-heavy grid to slow climate change. This is from the New York Times. South Africa generates 80% of its electricity by burning coal more than any other industrialized nation. Some 200,000 people are directly employed by the coal mines, coal transports, and coal-fired power plants that dot the flatlands east of Johannesburg, or is it Johannesburg, however you say it. But the prosperity of the rest of the nation also rests on a foundation of Black Rock. Now, the South African government, with the help of the United States and European nations, is embarking on an audacious plan to quit coal mining without undermining economic growth. If it works, the proposed transition to solar and wind power could fuel faster growth and create a template for coal-dependent nations to confront climate change. This is a significant opportunity, and it deserves support and attention. The United States has committed more than $1 billion as part of an $8.5 billion international aid package to catalyze South Africa's shift to renewable energy. And after two years of talks about the details, the government in Pretoria is to deliver a plan in February for carrying it out. America's own response to climate change remains inadequate, and Americans are suffering as a result. But even if the United States stopped burning fossil fuels tomorrow, magically and completely, it wouldn't much impede the march of climate change. The country needs to help the rest of the world burn less fossil fuel, too. South Africa is a promising place to start. South Africa needs more electricity. The country's coal-fired plants, power plants, are regularly overwhelmed by demand, forcing the national power company, ESCOM, spelled E-S-K-O-M, to impose rolling blackouts. To generate more electricity, ESCOM is completing two coal-burning power plants. Most leaders in South Africa's 
government regard those plants as the end of an era. Climate change is taking a growing toll in the country. Like many countries that are far from the equator, South Africa is experiencing drastic changes in temperature, and it has been plagued by both droughts and flooding. Many of the country's existing coal-fired power plants need to be replaced in the coming years, and the rapid decline in the cost of wind and solar power generation means that renewable energy that uh, can be substituted for coal at relatively little additional cost. Last year, the country shut down the first of those older power stations. It plans to build a solar and wind farm on the site, once again with financing provided by the World Bank. For South Africa, there will be a temptation to treat solar and wind as supplements rather than replacements for coal power. Political leaders have made clear that they are not willing to sacrifice growth. And even as the government pursues its plans, some have openly argued that coal remains the country's best option. The hardest work, in other words, remains ahead, given the urgency of addressing climate change and the momentum to extend similar aid to other nations. It will be crucial to learn and to adjust quickly. That does not give an author. They are too cowardly to put their name down, whoever wrote that. Moving on now to another opinion piece, Why More People of Color Are Supporting Republicans. This is by Rachel Ferguson. See, she put her name down. The, through the, a phenomenon called linked fate, small or marginalized groups tend to vote more as a block, assuming they might not have a loud enough voice in the political system if they don't band together at the polls. But exhaustion from a series of broken promises is breaking up these long-held strongholds. Black voters supporting Democrats dropped from 90% to 86% in 2022. While this seems like a small shift, it's shocking for a population whose vote has often been taken for granted by liberals. The Latino vote for Democrats dropped from 69% to 60%, a more precipitous shift in a far less unified population. Most familiar is the distinction between conservative Cubans who fled the Castro regime versus more liberal Mexicans, many of whom have undocumented family members. But last year, voters with Mexican roots flipped famously Democratic Miami-Dade County for Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. What's going on here? And is it a harbinger for things to come? To quote economist Glenn Lowry, a social science is harder than physics. But specifics about black and Latino culture can show why tensions with an increasingly left-wing Democratic Party are rising. First, it shouldn't be assumed that black and Latino voters are unconcerned with border security. Legal immigrants can be surprisingly frustrated with leniency for those who didn't have to endure the same exhausting process they did. And to the extent that these minority groups are overrepresented among the working class, new immigrants are often painted as challengers for jobs or wages. This is largely untrue unless we're referring to the tiny percentage of the population without a high school diploma. Most people aren't aware of how much immigration boosts the American economy. But even if they favor more open borders, it's fairly obvious that we could secure the borders while making the immigration process easier and come to a reasonable compromise. So many conclude that the immigration issue is such a great political football that nobody in Congress wants to solve it, including the Democrats. Second, many black and Latino voters belong to churches that are conservative about sexuality and gender. While acceptance of gay marriage shot up after the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision, the cultural push for adolescent transgenderism and uh, polyamory is a bridge too far for many of these religious folks. 
This only adds fuel to the fire for complaints by Latinos and black people about inadequate schools and unacceptable crime rates in their neighborhoods. Minority parents tend to support school choice despite stern Democratic opposition. While black Americans polled in 2020 agreed that they'd like to be treated better by the police, 80% said they wanted either the same or more police in their neighborhoods. Education and crime are practical. Day-to-day matters that deeply affect us. I met a black lobbyist who had returned from stumping for left-leaning policies in Washington, D.C. On returning to his Chicago neighborhood, he thought, what difference did our policies make? Is anything any better? While the Democrats used to be associated with the worker, they are now associated with the college-educated elites. And the further left one goes, the richer and whiter one gets. Minority Democratic voters are the most centrist of their party. While Republicans were once the party of establishment business types, they now seem to care about the ignored and disdained American worker of whatever color. Black incomes increased so much between 2017 and 2019 that the black poverty rate dropped below 20% for the first time in American history, according to The Black Boom by Jason L. Riley. Furthermore, black and Latino Americans are among our most entrepreneurial citizens. Many of them dislike the layers of regulation that favor entrenched fat cats while blocking small startups. They think COVID restrictions went too far. There's only one way the Republicans can screw this up, and they very well may. Republicans have become notorious for their willingness to blame struggling communities for their failures. The tone of condemnation doesn't encourage or attract. A new wave of black and Latino Republicans, such as U.S. Senator Tim Scott, Republican of South Carolina, must do justice to the historic struggle of minority communities while favoring conservative policies. Negativity, such as that of conservative political commentator Candace Owens, is a losing proposition. Oh, come on, don't say that about Candace. Everyone loves Candace. But uh, that was a well-written piece by Rachel Ferguson. Moving on now to facial recognition will transform airport security. Yikes, what is this about? This is written by Sheldon H. Jacobson. Imagine using technology that never forgets a face while improving airport security and shortening lines. Such technology exists and may be coming to an airport near you. Every flyer over the past two decades knows that airport security procedures involve a lot of unpacking, screening, and repacking. This is the price that must be paid for using commercial air travel. Yet it does not need to be this way, and the Transportation Security Administration has the right idea in testing and deploying biometrics such as facial identification technology at airport security checkpoints. Though travelers believe that the most important task undertaken by the CSA is detecting threatening items, the true rule of airport security screening is ensuring that you are the person you claim to be. The TSA has been working on moving more passengers from unknown to known status for more than a decade. It introduced the TSA PreCheck in 2011, which gives travelers the privilege for a fee of accessing expedited screening lanes. This means that your shoes can stay on, your computers and electronics can stay in your carry-on bag, and light outerwear can remain in place. The launch of facial identification technology enhances such efforts and has the potential to revolutionize the way that airport security checkpoints are designed and operated. Facial identification technology ensures that You are who you claim to be. When presenting yourself at a checkpoint, your face becomes your entry pass based on a repository of pictures that you have voluntarily provided in the past. These pictures are assembled from passports or visas. 
Another technology that TSA has deployed is credential authentication technology. This provides a more robust process for identity verification and works in concert with real IDs, which regrettably have been delayed until 2025. Facial identification technology takes this process to an even higher level of robustness. It is now being tested on a limited scale at 16 airports. Passengers are being given the opportunity to participate by opting in at these locations. Once a person's identity is confirmed using facial identification technology, they may be subjected to expedited screening. Over time, error system risk is reduced. The biggest criticism of facial recognition technology is the perceived invasion of privacy and the security of photos taken at checkpoints. Yet the photos being used to match your identity, like when applying for a passport, are those that have already been shared with Customs and Border Protection. New photos taken at airport security checkpoints do nothing more than supplement what has been freely provided. As for the security of such photo data, the cyber world has been and continues to be the Wild West for criminals. Much of what we do on our phones may be vulnerable to intrusion, may be more vulnerable to intrusion than the photos stored by the Department of Homeland Security. The long game for facial identification technology is screening in real time. This means that most travelers can pass through checkpoints without stopping with none of their personal items requiring screening. This futuristic vision for airport security is a far cry from the physical screening-centered approach travelers endure today. Facial identification technology is a driver to make this future a reality. Such changes will not happen overnight. It will take many years before facial identification technology is sufficiently robust to affect such massive changes. But the technology is a game-changer. It adds a layer of security that will revolutionize airport screening. Once implemented and perfected, it will create a path for airport screening that will be eventually embraced as the new model for airport security. That's an opinion by Sheldon H. Jacobson, who is a professor of computer science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He wrote this for the Chicago Tribune. He has studied aviation security for more than 25 years. His email is shj at illinois.edu, and he can be followed, I believe this would be for Twitter, at SHJ Analytics. Moving on to the sports section now in the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. Three former Wall Optical players to be Hall of Famers. Induction into Midwest USSSA Slow Pitch Hall of Fame on February 25th in Olathe, Kansas, written by Peter Burnett. Three former Wall Optical Slow Pitch softball players will be inducted into the Midwest United States Specialty Sports Association Slow Pitch Hall of Fame on February the 25th at American Legion in Olathe, Kansas. Melanie Sutko, Dorsey, and Stacey Gnarum, Rybar, and Rob Childress played for Bob Wall's softball team after college. Sutko and Gnarum were both All-American softball players at Creighton while Childress played baseball in college first at Northeast Oklahoma Junior College before the University of Louisiana-Monroe. Both Sutko, Class of 05, and Canaram, Class of 04, were named to the Missouri Valley Conference All-Centennial Team. Sutko was one of two players in school history with two 70-hit seasons and earned Easton All-American first-team honors as a senior in 2005 batting .402 and stealing 24 bases, leading the MVC in both the two-time first-team All-MVC outfielder ranks in the Creighton Top 10 in batting average, stolen bases, hits, runs, and games played. 
a Papillion La Vista high graduate, Canaram was a four-year starter in center field, earning first-team All-NBC honors three times. With 37 home runs, the center fielder ended her as, maybe it's supposed to be ended her career, ended her as the Blue Jay and NBC career home run leader. Okay, I, I read that wrong. We're going to read this again. With 37 home runs, the center fielder ended her as the Blue Jay and NBC career home run leader. That still doesn't make sense, but we'll just run with that. Canaram's 13 home runs in 2004 were then a school record as she was named the 2004 MVC Player of the Year and Easton All-American. She started all 221 games of her career, ranking sixth in Creighton school history in games played, while she also ranks second in career RBI at 121 and third in doubles at 43. Canaram is also the CU career top 10 in hits and stolen bases. When the Creighton softball alums joined his team, Bob Walt was faced with a managerial challenge. Both were All-American center fielders at Creighton, he said, so it was tough to move one to left field. And when a guy by the name of Rob Childress was announced to be joining the team, Wall anticipated the arrival of the Nebraska assistant coach who went on to be head coach at Texas A&M for 16 years. I was surprised when a really skinny guy showed up, Wall said, but he proved himself. Bob Waldron, Rick Linen, Scott Harrell, and Tammy Hoffman. Council Bluffs native and umpire David Aaron was also inducted. Moving on now, Titans win fourth straight city duel. Coke's late pin keeps Lewis Central on top. This is written by Austin Heinen. It's wrestling news. It all came down to the last match and the final seconds of the final match, but Lewis Central defended its city wrestling crown, claiming its fourth consecutive city duels tournament title. The Titans defeated the Lynx 38-37 after Landon Coke defeated Daniel Sharp by fall with just 12 seconds to spare in the final match of the duel. The pin was exactly what the Titans needed to defend their city crown and Titans head coach August Mann's minutes after the win was still in a bit of disbelief after the intense finale of this duel. Landon wanted to be the hero tonight, and he got his opportunity, Mann said. He waited until the end, but he made it interesting for sure. My first thought was I couldn't believe we pulled it off. In the same moment, you go from about 10 seconds away from losing your title by a point, and he found an opening, and in the end... We win by one. If you're a wrestling fan, you got your money's worth tonight in that final duel. For us coaches, it was a bit of a close call, but I'm glad the fans got to see a great duel. We didn't come out flat in any of the duels. They came out ready to wrestle. Lewis Central was deducted a point due to unsportsmanlike conduct after the final match. After defeating St. Albert and Thomas Jefferson in that order, the Titans faced Abraham Lincoln, which featured two squads that were 2 to nothing in their previous duels on the night. The Lynx held a 31-18 lead late in the duel, but began a run after J.J. Story won by fall at 170, and Cameron Moore 182 and Braylon Camrad 190 earned six points, each by open forfeits to take a 33-31 lead in the duel. However, AL's Warren Summers won by fall in the 220 match to put the Lynx back ahead 37-33 as the team headed into the final match of the duel. The Titans needed a win by fall to get the win, or with any other result, would come up short. Within the final 30 seconds of the third period, Landon Koch turned his opponent Dan Sharp onto his back and got the win by fall with 12 seconds to spare in the match. 
I knew what I needed to do, Koch said. I had all my teammates in my corner. They all believed in me. I believed in myself and just found a way to get it done. I already had him on the ground. I knew time was getting short. I just thought, keep going, keep pushing, and don't give up. And I got him on his back, and I wasn't going to let him go. We didn't do as well in the, the lower weight, so we needed some guys to step up in the heavyweights, Camerad added. I was hoping to wrestle a match too, but of course, Coke got the biggest pin of the night. And in the end, we did what we had to do. In the first set of the duels, St. Albert took on Lewis Central, and Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson wrestled on the other mat. Lewis Central defeated St. Albert 49-12 as Daniel Overall, Carter Schorsch, Derek, Gregory, Jordan Smith, and Cameron Moore all won by forfeit. Open matches. In head-to-head competition, Jalen Davis defeated Matthew Crawley by major decision 16-3 at 152. Paxton Blanchard at 170 defeated Andrew Crawley 3-1. And Braylon Camrad at 195 pinned Jaden Beckman 58 seconds into the match. Winners for the Falcons were John Helton at 145, who beat James Moore by fall 31 seconds into the match, and David Helton at 160, who also won his three, uh, went hist of three matches. I think there's a typo there. Three matches by fall over Jaden Trotter in the third period. The Lynx defeated the Yellow Jackets in a battle of the President's Schools 54-27. The school started at 220, where AL's Warren Summers won by fall a minute into the first period over Bryce Grego. Jameson Vanderveld, 106, and Louis Avalos, 120, won by open forfeits. And Lynx's Aiden Watts beat TJ's by fall 48 seconds into the match at 113. Evan Lang won over Seth Thompson by fall 111 into the match at 132. Also earning wins for the Lynx, Parker Herzog defeated Mason Kramer early in the second period by fall at 145. Cowan Dighton pinned Isaac Carpenter at 152. Ezekiel Leichner pinned Riley Quick Quickie Milligan at 160. And Matt Long at 170 pinned Dylan Janik. Earning wins for the Jackets were Richard J. Webb, 195 pounds by a forfeit. At 285, Max Avalos beat Daniel Sharp by a fall in the second period. Elijah Bolin beat Juan Avalos Cabellos by by a 6-4 decision. Hayden Kramer at 138 defeated Yandel Neverett by fall. And Jaden Alo won by fall over. Jose Avalos at 182 pounds. In the second round of duels, Abraham Lincoln beat St. Albert at 51 to 27, and Lewis Central defeated Thomas Jefferson 65 to 6. In round three, St. Albert and Thomas Jefferson squared off as Lewis Central and Abraham Lincoln did their duel on the other mat. Thomas Jefferson defeated St. Albert 42 to 28. Well, the sports being read, I actually breezed back past some. Uh, Nation and world news. So I want to bring you some news now from the Digest here in the time we have remaining here on the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil Reading. Germany pressed on Ukraine tanks. Dateline Berlin. Germany faced mounting pressure to supply battle tanks to Kiev and Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky aired frustration about not obtaining enough weaponry as Western allies conferred Thursday on how to best support Ukraine nearly 11 months into Russia's invasion. Germany's new defense minister, Boris Pistorius, 
welcomed U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to Berlin. He declared that German weapons systems delivered so far have proven their worth and that we will continue in the future, together with our partners, to support Ukraine in its fight for freedom, territorial independence, and sovereignty. He did not, however, mention the Leopard 2 tanks that Ukraine has long sought. Since the U.K. announced last week that it will send Challenger 2 tanks, Berlin has faced increasing pressure to supply battle tanks or at least clear the way for others, such as Poland, to deliver German-made Leopards from their own stock. Climate activists slam execs in Davos, dateline Davos, Switzerland. Swedish climate campaigner Greta Thunberg on Thursday slammed corporate bigwigs meeting in Davos, Switzerland, for fueling the destruction of the planet by investing in fossil fuels and prioritizing short-term profits over people affected by the climate crisis. Thunberg was joined by prominent young activist Vanessa Nekate of Uganda, Helena Galinga of Ecuador, and Luisa Neubauer of Germany in a roundtable with International Energy Agency Executive Director Feda Barol at the World Economic Forum's annual gathering. Nakate, who at one point choked up, said, Leaders are playing games with people's futures. People in parts of the world most affected by climate change are clinging to their lives and just trying to make it for another day, to make it for another week, to make it for another hour, to an, for another minute, she said. Galinga said the world is taking a really dangerous path. You know what, Greta? I think in honor of you, I'm going to go find the chuggediest, biggest, big block old car. I'm going to fix it up and drive it every day. Every day. Hopefully with a four-barrel carburetor on it. It gets like eight miles a gallon and just puffs of smoke as I drive down the street with like 500 foot-pounds of torque under my right foot. Thinking of you. Vroom, vroom, Greta. Vroom, vroom. U.S. economy in the digest section. The number of people seeking unemployment benefits in the U.S. reached a four-month low last week, a sign that employers are holding on to their top, onto their workers, despite the Federal Reserve's efforts to slow the economy and tamp down inflation. Meanwhile, the average long-term U.S. mortgage rate fell this week to its lowest level since September. Plane crash. Newly opened airport in Nepal where a Yeti airplane's plane was attempting to land when it crashed over the weekend, killing all 72 on board, did not have a functioning instrument landing system that guides planes to the runway, an official said Thursday. Supreme Court leak. Supreme Court said Thursday it had not determined who leaked a draft of the court's opinion overturning abortion rights, but the investigation continues. Wildfires. The U.S. is directing $930 million toward reducing wildfire dangers in 10 western states by clearing trees and underbrush from national forests. That's an idea. The Biden administration announced Thursday as officials struggle to contain destructive infernos made worse by climate change. Send some of that firewood this way. North Korea. State media reported Thursday that North Korea's rubber stamp parliament passed a budget that sustains a high level of defense spending despite the country's economic troubles as leader Kim Jong-un pushes for an aggressive expansion of his nuclear arsenal. And finally, China AI. Speaking of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, FBI Director Christopher Wray said Thursday he was deeply concerned about the Chinese government's artificial intelligence program, asserting it was not constrained by the rule of law. That's always scary stuff there. All right, in the time we have left, one more story. 
Baldwin will face charge in shooting. Prosecutor announces move citing criminal disregard for safety. This is an AP story. Dateline, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Actor Alec Baldwin and a weapons specialist will be charged with involuntary manslaughter in the fatal shooting of a cinematographer on a New Mexico movie set. Prosecutors announced Thursday citing a criminal disregard for safety. Santa Fe District Attorney Mary Carmack Altweiss announced the charges against Baldwin and Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, who supervised weapons on the set of the Western Rust, and said charges will be filed by the end of January. Helena Hutchins died after being wounded during rehearsals at a ranch on the outskirts of Santa Fe on October 21, 2021. Baldwin was pointing a pistol at her when it went off, also wounding the director, Jewel Souza. Assistant Director David Halls, who handled Baldwin the gun, signed an agreement to plead guilty to negligent use of a deadly weapon, the district attorney's office said. Involuntary manslaughter can involve a killing that happens while a defendant is doing something lawful but dangerous and is acting negligently or without caution. It is a fourth-degree felony, punishable by up to 18 months in jail and a $5,000 fine under New Mexico law, but could result in five years in prison because the offense was committed with a gun. That's all the time we have being left. And with this being read and said, you've been listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Parel Reading here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We appreciate your listenership. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Hope you have a great day, everyone. A great afternoon. Straight ahead. 